Good evening and welcome to this, the, the final event of what you, I'm sure you will agree has been a quite magnificent Edinburgh Book Festival for 2005. I'm, I'm Brian Taylor. The, the day job is covering politics, but very much the, the long-term love is, is literature and, and poetry and the arts generally. And so I was ab absolutely delighted to be chairing Liz Lockhead tonight. Indeed, I chaired her last year, I think it was either last year or the year before, mm -hmm. as the very first event That's of the right. Book Festival. And now we're closing the book festival, so it's becoming a bit of a, a bit of a regularity, but in different ways. I think in, in, in a funny way, you know, the Japanese do these things rather well. I attended a, a Japanese dance session recently in Edinburgh at the Festival Theatre, where the, the main artist, the main dancer, had been named in his native city as a living national treasure. And I, I, thought, I thought afterwards, is that not great? You know, is not, some, not some crap little award from a newspaper or something like that, but a living national treasure. Well, I hear with, I hear with, uh, with your support, of course, I'm sure, convey upon Liz Lockhead the title of <laughs> living national treasure for, for Scotland. Because her poetry is superb. Her poetry touches the, 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 the deeps. It touches the individual. But it also does, in, in, in a in, in, in a, a, a one very singular way contrived to pull together what is an element of this rather curious nation that we, we, we call Scotland, both in terms of our writing and also in terms of the, the sort of performances you're, like, you're going to witness here tonight, um, never more so than when, of course, she drew together the, the, the soul and the core of the nation in reading out Eddie Morgan's poem at the, the opening day of the, the Scottish Parliament. So uh, uh, without further ado, I'd invite you to join me in welcoming Liz Lockhead. Thank you very much, Brian. It's lovely to see you again. I can't believe it's a whole year already. No, no. Um, yes, um, you're right. Since we last met, I had the most terrifying gig of my life, which was to stand up and say Eddie Morgan's wonderful four and a half minute long tongue twister crammed <laughs> poem. <laughs> now, it makes something like this seem just an easy pleasure talking among friends. Then my heart was hammering so hard that I thought it was going to, you know, literally jump out of my chest and that I wasn't going to be able to breathe and actually get it out. And then I thought I would get a row from Eddie afterwards. <laughs> um, uh, the lovely thing is that, you know, um, people recognised me afterwards because they'd been watching the thing. So I got all these compliments in the train and I had to keep telling them, I didn't write it. I would love to have written that. I would love to have written that. But just after that, I did get another, um, via Eddie Morgan as well, I got another wonderful honour. Um, Eddie, because he's the, um, the Scottish Poet Laureate, the Scots Macker, as they call it, but Eddie prefers Poet Laureate because everybody knows what that means. Um, uh, because he was also the Glasgow Poet Laureate and he thought it was too greedy in his 85th year to be both at once, um, uh, I got made the Glasgow Poet Laureate. Now, this was a lovely, lovely honour. Um, honours are a bit of a... I don't know, they're, they're kind of scary things. You've got to be feeling up for getting an honour. And um, I was going through a bit of a downer. You know, I had a really bad kind of winter. I wasn't writing anything well, not even checks to pay the, 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 the gas bill, really. Um, so uh, I felt really a fraud when this lovely thing happened. Um, you know, things like national treasure, Brian, national treasure, that, that just means fat. It does. It is. That's all it means. Um, no, it is. 
Well, not for that dancer in Japan, but yeah. Um, but anyway, getting this great honour was something that I thought, I, can't, I must say no to this because I haven't written a poem for ages. I'm a complete fraud. And then, of course, you know, you kind of, I thought, well, it's not up to me to say no to an honour like this, even although, yes, I agree with my husband that it ought to be Tom Leonard, who's much the best poet in Glasgow. Um, <laughs> uh, but I thought, Tom Leonard isn't a very clubbable person. And, you know, I will turn up and, uh, you know, uh, uh, get cuddled together with the, the uh, Lord Provost, the Lady Lord Provost, who's, a, who's great fun, and uh, do that kind of thing. Tom Leonard's far too much of a satirist and uh, with a sting in his tail. Uh, so I thought, I've got to say yes to this. But I did feel a fraud. And they said, so at the dinner, will you give us a new poem? <laughs> anyway, at least it gives me something new to read tonight. And it's about, about the poems coming back, really about the hope for poems coming back. And it was a poem in acceptance of the Glasgow Poet Laureate job. Oh yes, and of course, all of you here do know that the Glasgow coat of arms has a tree, a bird, a fish, and a bell in it, don't you? You know, this is the tree that never grew, this is the uh, bird that never flew, this is the bell that never rang, this is the fish that never swam. Nice depressing wee <laughs> rhyme. I didn't write that one either. <laughs> But I did, I did write this, and I thought, what will I do? I'll somehow contain a tree, a bird, a fish, and a bell into this poem, somehow. Poets need not be garlanded. The poet's head should be innocent of the leaves of the sweet bay tree twisted. All honor goes to poetry. And poets need no laurels. Why be lauded for the love of trying to nail the disembodied image with that one plain word to make it palpable? For listening into silence, for the rhythm capable of carrying the thought that's not thought yet. The pursuit's its own reward. So you have to let the poem come to voice by footering late in the dark at home by muttering syllables of scribbled lines or what might be lines eventually if you can get it right. And this perhaps in public, the daytime train, the biro, the back of an envelope and again the fun of the wild goose chase that goes beyond all this fuss. Inspiration? Bell rings, penny drops, the light bulb goes on and tops, the not good enough idea that went before. No, that's not how it goes. You write, you score it out, you write it in again the same, but somehow with a different stress. This is a game you very seldom win, and most of your efforts end up in the bin. There's one hunched and gloomy heron haunts that nearby stretch of River Kelvin, and it wouldn't if there were no fish. If it never, in all that greyness passing, caught a flash, a gleam of something made that quick stab. That's how a poem is after a long nothingness. You grab at that anything, and this is food to you. It comes through as leaves do. All praise to poetry, the way it has of attaching itself to a familiar phrase in a new way, insisting it be heard and seen. Poets need no laurels, surely. 
Their poems, when they can make them happen rarely, crown them with green. And uh, at the same time, oh, thank you very much. Having forced a poem, a wee one came as a present afterwards. This has also got a tree, a bird, a fish and a bell in it. It's a wee nursery rhyme for my friends Graham McLaren and Rebecca. Uh, Graham and Rebecca have just adopted a wee girl from a far province in China and she's just beautiful and she makes them very happy. She makes us all happy when we see her. So uh, just to, to welcome Molly to Glasgow, I thought she needed a Glasgow nursery rhyme. Molly Pen Lee McLaren, come home and look at the pictures in your brand new book. A tree, a bird, a fish, a bell. A bell, a fish, a tree, a bird. Point, wee Molly, and say the word. Oh, Molly, I wish you the moon as white and round as a dish. And a bell, a tree, a bird, and a fish. Touch, taste, look, smell. Tree, fish, bird, bell. And listen, wee Molly, listen well. To the wind, to the wind, and the tree goes swish. Bird, bell, tree, fish. To the shrill of the bird and the plop of the fish and the clang of the bell and the stories they tell. The stories they tell. Molly, the tree, the bird, the fish, and the bell. This is an old poem about the same thing, about poems coming back after a gap. And it's in this book, page nine. This one's called Smirnoff for Karloff. <laughs> and I wrote this um, after a play about Mary Shelley and, and her creature, and some poems on that line as well. And this is a good, fun, out loud poem at the end of it but it's about much the same thing as the one about the heron. Smirnoff for Karloff. So you're who's been sleeping in my bed. Well, hello there. Long time no see. So you're my big fat little secret, stretched out cold, just between you and me. Between you and me and the bedpost, it's getting a little crowded in here. Roll over. Let me whisper sweet zeros in your good ear. Open up your glad eye. Oh my, I'm going to make you, going to make you sit up, going to make you, going to take you to bits, going to take you to the cleaners, going to make you look cute, going to let you roll the pole all over me in your funeral suit. The one you wear to weddings. Yeah, with the two short drain pipe trousers, with the brothel creeper boots and the tire track soles. And the squirt in the eye trick carnation in your buttonhole. You know, matron, take more than hospital corners to keep a good man down. Oh, yeah. Everything in apple pie order, all present and correct. Ship shape, eye, eye. He got all my wits around him, his extrasensory senses and his five straight limbs. Yes, sir, you'll be up and about again in no time. What wouldn't you give to love me? An arm and a leg. Gonna make you, make you sit up, sit up and beg. Hey, mister, mister, can your dog do tricks? Gonna make you. Gonna put you to the test. 
Going to make you give your all six nights per week and on Sundays going to take the rest. Sure, you can smoke in bed. It's a free country. Let me pour you a stiff drink. You're shivering. Well, you know what they say. If you can't take the cold, then get out of the icebox. What that? What's that? Smirnoff? Well, you know, Mr. Karloff, I used to think an aphrodisiac was some kind of confused Tibetan mountain goat with a freak-out hairdo until I met my monster, and my monster met his maker. Oh, yeah. That who been sleeping in my bed. Same old surprise. Oh, goody. Long time no see. Ain't gonna let nothing come between my monster and me. This is another figure, another male figure. Um, this is a, a figure that I used to see cycling past in the first house that my mum and dad and I lived in, the, the house they lived in all their lives, all their married lives, from when I was four. And uh, it was an ex-mining village turned into a sort of dormitory scheme for Motherwell and the industrial estate up at New House. Uh, so there was this old miner who used to be the last remnant of, I think, many, very mi many miners that had been the inhabitants of that village before the war. And this guy must have worked in one open cast mine away up towards Shots. And it must have been a wee mine. It couldn't have had put head baths because he would cycle home still black with his peace box on the back bit of his bike, you know, with one of those wee elastic things holding it in. And uh, I remember this figure really clearly, but for some reason, a couple of years ago, he came up in my head and started to speak to me out loud. And uh, the lovely thing about him, he wasn't old as he seemed to me then, but the way he must have been maybe 20 or 30 years before I saw him, when he was the new married miner, and this is him speaking. My shift is over that was night time all day long. My love, it's lousing time. Alone among these dog-tired colliers, my druths for home. Bank up the fire with small coal till I come. And before tomorrow I'll not think again how sore and small the space I have to hunker in, or how huge and hard but true it pulls all day as at the pit head black against the sky the big wheel turns now my bike's coggling front wheel clicks and squeaks my cold bones ache as hard for home I pedal still blacked up like a darky minstrel my long path home is starved of light so I must do without no moon tonight, so round and white. It's Davy lamps gone out. Frost edges every blackened leaf. Black snot flowers on my handkerchief. Heat my bath scalding, and bonny lass I'll make the white lace of the lather black. Squeeze the hot soapy flannel at the nape of my neck, and scribble long white chalk marks down my back. 
Put the dark fire to the poker till the hot flames burst and flower. Stretch out the towel and I'll stand up. Hold and fold me. Rub and scrub me as hard as you can till in your white warm arms I'll end up. A pink and naked man, my love. Your pink and naked man. Don't clap the individual poems because they get awful jealous of each other. And uh, also it takes up some of my precious time with you tonight. Um, No, they really do get very jealous. Um, This next one is also about some male figures. Um, I dedicated this one to my friend Michael Mara, a Dundonian like yourself, Brian, a splendid Dundonian. And... uh, I began to get sorry for Michael because he's a songwriter and he has to be Ira to his own George and George to his own Ira. I'm uh, very, very keen on uh, songwriters in general, but um, I've got a very soft spot uh, for the songwriters of the 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s. Those Americans, many of whom who were first generation uh, English speakers, whose parents only spoke Yiddish, and who were madly in love with every cliché in the American language and turned it into great poetry that could break your heart. So this is for Ira and George, and it's dedicated to Michael Mara. Oh, yeah, and it comes out, uh, it starts off with a quote. Another one, another great songwriter, Sammy Khan, says that people were always asking him, which comes first, the words or the music? And he said, first the phone call. <laughs> Here's Ira and George. First the phone call, as the man said, and he sure said a mouthful to that which comes first, words or music question. Who knows? Except for every good one there are ten in the trash, songs you slaved over that just won't sing, in which no lover ever will hear some wisecrack twist itself to tell his unique heartbreak. So sore, so personal, so well he can't stop humming it. The simplest three-chord melody might have legs once it's got the lyric, not tunesmith's ham and eggs. Each catchphrase colloquialism, each cliché, each snatch of overheard on the subway or street can say so much, so much when rhymed right, when phrased just so to fit its own tune that was born for it. A Manhattan night in 29 or 30. It's late. You're reading Herrick. Just back from a party, your brother calls out, hey, let's work. You watch him shuck his jacket, loose his black tie, and grab your book. Gather ye rosebuds, he says, and slams it shut. He's right. Hard against the deadline, and at night, shoes off, Moon up, just daring you, piano open. That's when you two can make it happen. The tune that smells like an onion, play it very slow. Then the one that sounds like the Staten Island Ferry till you hear the words. Brother, they're already there under the siren and the train and the cab horn blare of his jazz of endless possibilities that will only fit its own fine-tuned lyric that is born for it. 
Oh, this next one is the ultimate first the phone call poem of mine. Um, I was phoned up by a woman at the BBC who said, would I like £50 for writing a poem uh, for nine-year-olds? Um, she said they were trying to encourage kids to write in their hometown language. So she said she wanted a dialect poem. I said I didn't really like the word dialect very much because it insinuated that some people spoke properly and some people didn't. She took my point and she said, no, we really are trying to encourage kids to hold on to their hometown language. Well, of course, I wanted to write the poem, didn't I? And I wanted the 50 quid. <laughs> so... The night before the deadline, up all night, trying to work out how the hell to write a dialect poem for nine-year-olds from John O'Groats to Land's End. How are you going to do it? I thought, you have to build in your translation. It's just a bilingual poem. It's called Kids' Poem, Bairn Sang. And it goes nice with Keeley music. It was January and a geidrich day, the first day I went to the school. So my mum hat me up in my good navy blue nap coat with a red tartan hood, billed a scarf around my neck, put on my pixie and my pockies, it was that bitter, said, no you'll no starve, gave me a wee kiss and a kid on scalp in the bum and sent me aff across the playground to the place I'd learned to say. It was January and a really dismal day the first day I went to school. <laughs> So my mother wrapped me up in my best navy blue top coat with the red tartan hood, twirled a scarf around my neck, pulled on my bubble hat and mittens, it was so bitterly cold, said, now you won't freeze to death, gave me a little kiss and a pretend slap on the bottom and sent me off across the playground to the place I'd learned to forget to say it was January and a geidrich day the first day I went to the school so my mum hat me up in my good navy blue nap coat with a red tartan hood barreled a scarf around my neck pooed on my pixie and my pockies it was that bitter oh saying it was one thing but when it came to writing it in black and white, the way it had to be said, was as if you were posh, grown up, male, English and dead. <laughs> the schools liked it. The schools liked it. Even in Land's End. <laughs> this is another poem about a man, a male figure, and it's also about language. It's about the universal, imperialist language of the comic strip. I began to think of what if there was a land of the comic strip, about how it was a rather sinister place. You wouldn't want a passport to that place at all. And uh, once I began to think up that, that poet, this kind of graphic language and how to describe it in black and white, uh, this man popped up, just like a comic. DC Thompson's should love this one. But this is the man in the comic strip. For the man in the comic strip, things are not funny. No wonder he's running in whichever direction his piss-poor piston legs are facing, getting nowhere fast. If only he had the sense he was born with, He'd know there is a world of difference between the thinks bubble and the speech balloon and when to keep it zipped so 
with a visible fastener. But his mouth is always getting him into trouble. Fistfights blossom round him. There are flowers explode when the punches connect. A good idea is a light bulb, but too seldom. When he curses, spirals and asterisks and exclamation marks whiz around his head like his always palpable distress. Fear comes off him like petals from a daisy. Anger brings lightning down on his head and has him hopping. Hunger fills the space around him with floating ideograms of roasted chickens and iced buns like maiden's breasts, the way the scent of money fills his eyes with dollar signs. For him the heart is always a beating heart. True love, always comically unrequited, the unmistakable silhouette of his one and only will always be kissing another behind the shades at her window and down at the mouth he'll always have to watch it from the graphic lamplit street. He never knows what is around the corner, although we can see it coming. When he is shocked, his hair stands perfectly on end, but his scream is a total zero, and he knows it. Knows to beware of the zigzags of danger, knows how very different from the beeline of Z's that is a hostile horizontal buzzing of single-minded insects swarming after him are the gorgeous big haphazard Z's of sleep. <laughs> um, having mentioned fear, we've experienced a lot of it recently and I'm sure we'll be experiencing more. Um, it made me realise that even although I've not been writing much poetry recently, I've only been translating poets, um, that a couple of years back when I was working on a play called Thebans, which was Oedipus and Antigone laced together with fragments of Euripides and Aeschylus from other plays, um, that when I was working on those plays, just before the Iraq war started, I realised how contemporary are the ancient Greeks. And uh, this is just a bit of chorus, a bit of chorus from Thebans. Fear. That's the God that rules us now. Our hammering hearts won't stop. A tiny pulse of agitation beats behind every temple. Little incendiaries of anxieties ignite till full-blown terror catches fire and overwhelms us. We are quaking. Any moment now, the noise of battle, loud alarms and sirens, drowned out in louder clash and screaming. Our city's finest, our bravest men are on the very battlements. What will happen to us all, to our prayers and our hopes? From the enemy skies, a hail of missiles comes whistling down, raining on us bullseyes, targeting our defenders with terrifying accuracy. Cities stand so tall, we live in them, forgetting they can be broken, brought down in flaking ashes, smoke and horror. 
The broken city is a forest that offers no shelter, no shelter for the screaming baby starving on the breast of the murdered mother, for the raped girl splayed beneath the laughing soldiers, for the old men herded like beasts, for their mutilated corpses, for the old women dragged by the hair like animals, for the skulls cracked like eggshell. Now is the time, time for our terror that has been so long growing to be harvested. Nightmare may be tomorrow's news, but at least, at last, for good, for ill, the battle will be over. Those among us who are men, or remnants of men, must fight. Adrenaline and terror, a tidal wave, sweeps each to a fateful city gate. And those who are women must cower at home and pray and wait. Cities stand so tall, we live in them, forgetting they can be broken, brought down in flaking ashes, smoke and horror, dust. I attached the last quatrain to the earlier chorus just to make a single kind of blast of terror from that. Um, a little tiny bit of Medea, scary as well. This one's about a scary thing too. The chorus again, talking about something that brings us all down. Desire, excess. And what desire is not excessive gets us into such trouble, does us in. Drives us wild, makes us gluttons for punishment. Oh God, save us from that hotshot Cupid and his brutal bullseyes. Desire, excess. Yes, better avoid it like the plague, or we've not the sense we were born with. No tangles in snarled sheets. No white nights in beds we should not be lying in. The best hope for us? Celibacy, or the next best thing, the cosy old... Sorry. The next best thing, the cosy old, comfy married bed that's full of snores not battles. And then Medea, talking back to them soon after, decides that she wishes she was more moderate and more like the chorus. Can I convince myself to play the part of one of you until I learn it? Can I get philosophy, sigh and say it happens? I am not the first and I won't be the last. In 100 years it will all be the same. Can I wear the mask of moderation? Can I? As if when Cupid, Aphrodite's child, sweet Eros, drove the shaft of his arrow into my heart as deep as the feathers, he never struck me. With love for Jason, I'm stuck with forever. The, the biggest pleasure of this festival for me this year has been the visit of my friends Lorna Crozier and Patrick Lane. It's been just a delight. Um, and uh, a long, long time ago, 28 years ago, they uh, took me into their house in Winnipeg, showed me what it was like, how cold it was at the corner of Portage and Maine as the winds blew in. And... Um, because the train was going to be a drag, Lorna said to me, I'll drive you to Regina. 
which was the next place I was going to, 700 miles away. <laughs> um, so I would like to, especially for them, read three Canadian poems that I wrote on that trip, very, very influenced by them in, in their different ways. I'm sorry, the, the house lights not being up means it's awful hard for me to see. I was terribly good. I put a nice bit of notepaper together and uh, I'm very glad I know most of my poems because it's all wee green bees when I look down because of the lighting. Right, these Canadian poems are on page 24. Here we are. Um, three poems from a trip 27 years ago. Probably about a little bit later than this time of the year. It was autumn. And it's amazing when you go across Canada. The first poem talks about my amazement and it was written on the train looking out onto that Canadian shield. It's called Ontario, October, Going West. The wilderness tells the eye, you won't get very far with me, says Tangle Scribble, says paw mark and leaf print, stippling, layer on layer, says fern stitch, herringbone, rusted wire wool to lie on, whisk ear, blackthorn, says strewn silky pillow stuffing, burst milkweed, says nudging blunt bulrushes, brown velvet, fish-hooked bar, bramble barb, vast feathery colourlessness. The trees scream jaundice, canary, orange peel, adultery, oxblood, magenta. The single drowned birch shrieks fingerbone. The lake says, frankly, this is a very old trick. It's all done with mirrors. The barn, see my ancient white hex sign in a circle, says, I'm twice as big and beautiful as any house. Winters like these, believe me, I have to be. The railway says, east, west. The prairie, when you get to it, says keep going. Lorna took me to stay with a friend of hers called Liz Allen, who was living in the prairies near this, I suppose it was a township called Capel. Um, and uh, Liz Allen, who was a poet as well, um, was from New Zealand, from near the sea in New Zealand. And there she was in the middle of the prairies, washed up in the middle of the prairies. And uh, this is a poem about her. Near Capel. But then love, she said, is almost always, surely, she said, a strange country. She had pale seafarer's eyes, that girl. There was ocean glass. There were bits of seashell on the window ledge. And outside, the flat, colourless, flat, miles and miles, as far as what looked very nearly blue, but was really only distance and more of it. You will recognise our house, she'd said. It's the one up on, geez, the prairie. Couple of years here, you learn to call almost anything a hill. First year, more, I thought I would go mad, the wind. But then I'd married him. It was either that or go crazy. She grinned and sunburn, windburn, it did not matter which. The long ago, delicately hand-tinted little girl, certainly still recognisable photograph of her, 
in her own, her other country, hanging behind her on the wall. And the next one, back in the train again, is called In Alberta. It's great eavesdropping on buses and trains, isn't it? In Alberta. We have stopped by these great big grain elevators marked with logo wheat, stenciled Cargill, stamped Alberta Pool. The boxcars are just as clearly labelled with destinations and capacities, numbers, warnings, do not hump, no climbing on roof. Stopped flat and nothing for it but for 10 minutes to examine the forged and intricate Do it with my teeth in, will I? Stopped flat and nothing for it but for ten minutes to examine the forged and intricate ball and socket, ironwork, loop and pin, hand-fastened, engineered male and female couplings between the cars and exactly how they work, how often break, I honestly don't know, sweetheart. In Alberta, there are oil wells like loony mechanical chickens, dipping, guzzling. And the man in the next seat says, in Alberta, everybody's applying for a divorce. Says, pair next door, common law five years, and then the ceremony. But she goes off on this so-say holiday in salmon arm. Next thing, divorce. He says, no, it's not just the young ones in Alberta. He says his brother just damn well turned himself over in the dirt machine. Lucky to be alive, lucky to survive. Says he knew a man once, got squashed to nothing, nobody could recognize. Says there's lots of big machines could crush a man in Alberta. Um, at that time, Lorna Crozier, um, had a new book of poems which I think was just about to come out and she did a pamphlet from it um, and that book of poems was called Crow's Black Joy and it was a uh, the pamphlet particularly I remembered it went around with me to various places I lived after that and uh, a few years after that uh, when I was writing a play called Mary Queen of Scots got her head chopped off that crow with a black joy kind of popped up in my head again uh, and uh, became this character La Corby. For those of you in the audience who are not Scots, a Corby is just a Scots word for a crow and of course there's that great ballad The Twa Corbys, you know. Last night as I was by my lane I heard Twa Corbys making a mean the teen until the tither did say where shall we gang and dine the day. In a hint yon old field dyke a ken there lies a new slain knight and nobody kens, no nobody kens that he lies there, but his hawk, his hound, and his lady fair. His hound is to the hunting gain. His hawk to fetch the wild fowl hame. His lady's tain another mate, so we may freely make our dinner sweet. And o'er his white bones, when they lie bare, the wind shall blow forever mere. Slightly edited version, but you know the ballad. Anyway, anyway, Lorna's Crow's Black Joy kind of popped up, and La Corby became the chorus, 
long before I wrote any Greek plays, um, the, the single chorus figure in a play of mine, uh, gosh, 20 years ago nearly. And the first scene in the play was called Scotland, What Like? A question we can still ask. And La Corby was speaking. Country, Scotland, what like is it? It's a peat bog, it's a dark forest. It's a cauldron, a lie, a salt pan or a coal mine. If you're guy lucky, it's a brick. If you're guy lucky, it's a bricht beer meadow or a park okai. Or maybe it's a field of stains, it's a tenement or a merchant's hall, it's a hoorhoos or a humble cot, Prince's Street or Paddy's Market. It's a fistful of fish or a pickle of oatmeal, it's a queen's banquet or roast meats and junkets. It depends, it depends. I dinner ken what like your Scotland is, here's mine's. National flower, the thistle. National flower, the thistle. National pastime, nostalgia. National weather, smir, har, drizzle, snow. National bird, the crow, the corby, le corbeau, la corbeille, moi. How me, eh, eh, eh. Voice like a choked laugh, ragbag of a bird in my black duds, so angles and elbows and broken oxter feathers, black beady in in my executioner's hood. No bra. But I think I hear a sort of black glamour. Do I no put you in mind of a skating minister? Or, on the other fit, the parish priest, the dirty beast. My nests are reckless sticks. I live on lamb's eyes and road accidents. Oh, see, after the battle, after the battle, man, it's a pure feast. My eyes are our big, even for my belly. In lean years of peace, my belly thinks my throat's been cut. She takes the two queens. Mary in one hand and Elizabeth in the other. Once upon a time there were twa queens in the one green island and the one green island was split into twa kingdoms but no equal kingdoms. Nobody in the right mind would insist on that. For the northern kingdom was called and small and the people were low-statured and ignorant and feared of their lords and poor. They were starving. And their queen was tall and beautiful and fair and Frenchified. The other kingdom in the island was large and prosperous with wheat and barley and fat kai in the fields of her yeoman farmers and wool in her looms and beer in her barrels and at the mouth of her greatest river, a great port, a glistening city that sucked all wealth to its centre, which was a palace and a court of a queen. She was a cousin, a clever cousin, a wee bit older and maybe no si bro as the other queen. But a queen, nevertheless, queen or a country with an army and a navy and dominion over many lands, two queens, one green island, caw, caw, caw. <laughs> it was not exactly a history play, but um, this next one is for the girls. And I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to read many more, but I do want to read this one particularly. Because the other nice thing that's been happening in this festival is I've been staying with my friend Marion, who's come back from uh, Canada and is now living back at home in Edinburgh again. And uh, it's meant we've had some nice reunions with the girls. And uh, I, think, I think most of the girls, especially girls of my age and a wee bit younger, will recognise what I'm talking about here. 
I'll read it out of the right book. <clears throat> this is a poem called Social History. Social History. My mother never had sex with anyone else except my father. A week before her three-day leave to get married, my mother was examined by the army doctor and pronounced Virgo Intacta. 24 years old and Virgo Intacta, an unusual thing in the ATS, an unusual thing in wartime, if you believe even half of what you read in the social history books. And the joke was, I wasn't even sure your dad was going to make it. Rumour was they were going to cancel all leave prior to D-Day, so it was touch and go till the last minute. The sex my mother could have had but didn't sounded fantastic. <laughs> Clever Jewish boys from the east end of London whirled her round the dance floors, niftily slow fox-trotting her into corners, telling her the khaki matched her eyes. A soldier in a darkened carriage on a slow train wept on her shoulder when he told her that he'd lost his brother in North Africa. Two naval ratings on Margate Pier slipped a string of cultured pearls in her pocket, said, Miss, we just found these on the beach and you are so pretty we thought you ought to have them. She had a very close and very tender friendship with a lovely, lovely gentle NCO from the north of England who told her she was the image of his girlfriend. <laughs> An Italian prisoner of war sketched her portrait and her sister, who had her eye on him, was quite put out. She didn't care for Yanks, but that didn't stop them trying. A free French Frenchman fell in love with her. A Polish Air Forceman proposed. Any Scotsman she met down there had lovely educated accents and tended to be top brass. She mixed with folk from all over, which was the beauty of the services and the best of the party that was wartime, while the buzz bombs overhead didn't quite cut out. She was quite capable of downing her half of bitter and rolling out the barrel with all the other girls without ending up squiffy up against the wall afterwards with her knickers down, unlike some. When they all rolled back to barracks late, swinging their lyle-stockinged legs from the tailgate of a lorry singing apple blossom time, military policemen turned a blind eye in exchange for nothing more than a smile. Officers messed around with her in the blackout, but then my mother told them she was engaged to be married to my father. And they acted like the officers and gentlemen they were and backed off sharpish. So, my mother never had sex with anyone else except my father, which was a source of pride to her, being of her generation as it would have been a source of shame to me, being of mine. <laughs> Liz, that was superb, and a superb selection as well, witty, insightful, droll, the, the whole package. Thank you very much.
Indeed. I, I'm sure that the, we've got time for a few questions from the audience. If, if there's anyone of a mind to... Oh, my goodness. If there's anyone of, of a mind to ask a question or two, I thought there might be. Yes, there's, there's one at the back there. Gosh, great. If you can race up the back and uh, see what we think. Lovely. I can see you at last. I exactly. should have done the reading with the house lights up. I'm so sorry. Um, hello, Liz. You've Hi been there. inspiring me since you came to Murray House in the 1980s and spoke to would-be teachers. I don't know if you remember, you were dressed in tartan because it was Burns Night and you had a big Scotty dog brooch. Oh, I've got a lot of Scotty dog brooches. I collect them. So I had two <laughs> questions. One was, if you still dress like that every Burns Day because you said that you always dressed for the occasion. Well, I always like to dress for the occasion, whatever. Um, uh, no, um, I've still got that tartan jacket. I couldn't throw it away. And for about um, 20 years, I couldn't get into it, but it fits me again. So it's quite good. So, um, and it's so old, it's come back into fashion, almost. It's got that kind of retro look, you know. Um, it's a quite a nice jacket, isn't it? My husband fell in love with me when I was wearing that jacket. Although he didn't realise that. He didn't realise he'd fallen in love with me. He just says he was taken with me. It was definitely the first time I met him. And he does say that, you know, I wear this mad jacket. Match and I've not forgotten it. But okay. my other question was, um, what were you like as a, a primary school child, and what would you advise primary school teachers that might have a budding Liz Lockhead in their midst? You know, as a child, I was quite anxious. Um, I grew up after the war. You know, I've got some poems about that, and um, I grew up very much in the Cold War, and I was terrified of nuclear war right from being really small. Um, I think I was quite precocious. Um, I was lonely as a child because um, there weren't any children lived in the road. Well, we lived with my grandmother, then one grandmother, then another grandmother, and it was just old people around. So they were always nice to me and gave me lots of you know, soup and biscuits, and I would go around chatting away to old people and entertaining them and thinking, you know, I was just one of those wee kids. Um, but I heard too many things about, you know, scary things, I think. And uh, I was petrified that there was going to be a nuclear war. Um, sometimes I couldn't sleep all night, but I, was, I didn't want my parents to know that I was worried about it because I worried about them worrying about me, <laughs> worrying. Um, so I kind of kept that secret from them. So I always knew that I would have more fun as I've got older, and that's proved to be true, given I take the odd kind of winter of depression <laughs> when I can't write. Um, you know, I've definitely enjoyed life more as I've got older and I knew that I would like being a grown-up um, and it was I think the first time I really enjoyed education when I was at Glasgow School of Art and I've still I've got friends that I met there that are still some of my closest friends That's lovely. Good answer. Who, who's, who's next? Yes, please do I was going to say hi, thank oh, oh is it? Am I popping? No, no. Bit. Okay. Please. Hi there, it's not a question, just two little things. Thanks for the last hour, it's been really good. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank and you. And two, thank you. After coming to see you at Handfast launch last year, you opened your eyes to poetry. I'd never really read a poem since an old ducky, you know, do get coram est, you know, oh, as we all had to do much. at school and hated it. So thank you for opening my eyes to a whole new I, I new love Dolce. I think Dolce and Decora Mesta is a really great yes. poem. I mean, um, but I think I think what I think it's about 
Um, I was going to say that I can't read Walter Scott because we were made to read him. And my friend Alistair Grace says, oh, that wonderful novels, Liz. And I don't believe him. You know, I think there's nothing like forcing people to do things. In fact, my friend Adrian Mitchell, the poet, puts on his books of poetry, none of these poems can be reproduced in exam papers. Um, you know, he does, he just puts this in. You know, there's something about getting forced to do anything, isn't You're there? Quite right. we, we, but we I did like poems at school, you know, it's sort of, you know, just, uh, nobody could cre- quite right. quench we, we, that we, enjoyment. We had an English teacher used to come in and just, just bang at his desk and say, what's the repetition for today? And you had to read out these lines of poem. No, no, nothing more calculated to kill off an interest uh-huh. in, in literature than that. But, but Scott's, Sir Walter's great, the heart of an audience, the finest novel in the English language. You and Alistair Gray should get together. The finest novel <laughs> in the English language. Time for one more, if, if, we, if we can... Oh, come on. Yes. Yes. Thank you. If you hang, hang fire, the, up the, back. the microphone will, will, will come your way. It's always the furthest away, isn't it? It do, is. Do, 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 do forgive me. It's just, it's just well, a very quick one, Liz. Okay. Um, you've been talking about your childhood, and I've been wondering, when, can you remember when you first wrote your poetry, when you started? Ah. Or did it um, just sort of metamorphize? When I first wrote my poetry... Um, it was, I think, when I was 18. It was when I was at art school, when I was supposed to be drawing all the time. Uh, I suddenly started to miss words, you know, which I'd had a lot of words at school. But I did write kind of the dumb de dum poems when I was 12 to get into the school magazine, you know. It was always the first to phone call ones. You know, the English teacher would say, come on, you know, uh, so you'd write. Um, I blow over lands of cold on lands of Arctic, duh, 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 you know. Uh, I am cruel and beautiful. I am proud and bold. The wind, you know, and things like that. But I started writing. Sounds damn good, uh, actually. There's <laughs> half the folk at the book festival live would be crying out for one like that, I'll tell you. But for some reason, I started writing, and I don't, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of Scottish poets would say it's still not poetry, but, um, uh, you know, I, I sort of thought. Well, they're not songs because they don't have tunes and they don't really rhyme, most of them. They're not stories because they don't have a, a narrative really in them. They're, you know, they'd just be poem things, I suppose. You know, it would just write wee things. It, um, it was always um, the, the, the internal phone call, you know, the, just the, the... What happens with a poem is a little bit of ordinary language seems to come into your head with its own rhythm attached to it. Just a little tiny snippet and you've got to work hard to unearth and find the rest of the poem. Do you hear odd, odd phrases and, yeah. as you say, over, overheard in buses and things like that? Is it, is Sometimes it, that uh, can start. Uh, oh, definitely. Uh, They're more useful for plays and monologues yeah, okay. and funny things. But um, definitely, you know, a cliché can just turn itself outside in and start you off playing. You, you paint your pictures in your words, don't you? Well, I hope so, because I've stopped painting, really. I mean, I thought I went to Glasgow School of Art and studied, you know, drawing and painting. I still draw sometimes, but not very well. Um, I still enjoy drawing, though. There's something special about that way of looking. But I think all my kind of visual sense has gone into not just the poems, but I think into the theatre, which is quite um, spatial. You know, I I sort of see figures in space. Um, Maybe... Like my friend Alistair Gray, I'll end up painting again. Alistair at the moment is uh, 
uh, lying on his back. Uh, not just now, probably. I mean, um, but uh, oh, I you know, know. full time. <laughs> it could well be working to this time. Lying on his back and scaffolding in the Oran Moor, painting the most amazing murals. Yeah. And he says he doesn't mind. He might not write again for a while. But then he was down the pamphlet writing stuff before the election, wasn't he? Aye, indeed, yes. Indeed, indeed. Uh, you know. So maybe I'll end up painting again sometime. <laughs> I'd like to, but I, you know, I've lost my confidence with it. Just like my confidence with poetry goes away and comes back, you know, whatever. The Michelangelo virus road, eh? Alistair <laughs> <laughs> Gray, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, uh. Should we get Liz to read one more? Yeah. Yes, I felt so. That was a right. very positive yes, well done. <laughs> Liz, do you mind giving us one? I don't a, mind, a, a I don't mind at all, I'd like to. Um, I think it's a nice idea to end up poetry ah, with a poem. With a poem. And uh, poor old Brian, he didn't get to ask many questions because I engineered it, just it was mostly a poetry reading. <laughs> Terrible, eh? And I'm sure he had lots of very good questions, but I would like to <laughs> thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for being a wonderful moderator again. And thank Catherine Lockerbie for a, tr and Great all the time. staff. Yeah. Thank Catherine. You know, I'd like to toast Catherine yeah, Lockerbie. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for a great festival. <laughs> when it gets late at night, um, you're going to get people singing their old songs, aren't you? And you're going to get my way. Probably one of the worst songs ever written, I think. You know, I love Frank Sinatra, except My Way. But this is just a collection of cliches, and this is called My Way. I think I have to stand up. It's the kind of thing you can't do sitting down, this particular poem. Here's My Way to end up, and it's for Catherine. I only did it for a laugh. I did it because I'm a fool for love. I did it because push had come to shove. I did it because my age... I've got nothing to prove, but I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it. Yes, I did. I did it to settle an argument with a friend. I did it to drive our hazel round the bend. I did it to get one over on our kid. I did it to nip it in the bud. I did it that way because I couldn't stand the sight of blood. But I did it, I did it, I did it. Yes, I did. I did it to bury the hatchet and get a night's sleep. I did it to get out before I was in too deep. I did it to piss in his chips and put his gas at a peep. But I did it, I did it, I did it. Maya absolutely culpa, me. I did it to go out in a blaze of glory. I did it to make them listen to my side of the story. I only did it to get attention. I did it to get an honourable mention. I did it to put an end to it all. I did it for no reason at all, but I did it, I did it, I did it. Yes, I did. Thank you all very much. Now then, ladies, ladies, ladies and gentlemen, Liz will be signing copies of her books next door in the signing tent that's out there and to the, the right. If you can give us a few seconds, we'll just get ahead of you there, get all the books set out and all that, all that sort of thing. We, we, we race, you know. And uh, will you join me again in thanking the, the star of the show, Liz Lockett? Mm -hmm.